All right. So welcome, everyone. My name is Chidima, also known as the Type A Hippie, and I am so glad that you're here on the Type A Hippie podcast. This is Cheekast episode 58, and I'm on with Noah Levine, and I'm so excited to have him on. So welcome, Noah. Happy to be here. Thank you. So friends, you know that I, once I have someone in mind to be on the podcast, I usually don't stop until I get them on. So (laughs) this has been a testament to getting this amazing person on the podcast so that you all can hear directly from him about refuge recovery, about recovery in general, and so many things. So he is the founder of Refuge Recovery, which is a another pathway to recovery that so many have found. Um, I often say as a recovery advocate that 12 steps isn't the only way to go. Um, There are multiple pathways to recovery, and I love that that is the case so that people can find what they need, right? So Noah, welcome again, and tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Sure. Um, Well, and and I like your introduction about 12 steps not being the only way. Um, but for a long time, it was the only way I feel like, you know, sure. the, for the last, uh, you know, 80 years ago, especially in the thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, you know, like it was the only thing that was treating alcoholism and addiction sure. in our country, you know, medicine didn't understand it. Psychology didn't really understand it. And I feel like it's really just in the last couple decades that we've started to have some viable alternatives. I'm a recovering addict, and when I got sober in 1988, um, it was, you know, go to 12-step. That was the only kind of possibility, and so I started going, and I've been sober, ever, you know, for 29 years now, but um, I found in, in 12-step recovery a wonderful community and a supportive, and, and, you know, I, and so much of what I needed was just, like, other people who are also abstaining and but the core philosophy was, um, you know, the theistic, I mean, the 12 steps, everybody who knows about them or, or doesn't know about them, they're very open-minded and they do their best to be inclusive, but it's like this open-minded, inclusive theism, you know, higher power and God. And they say, as you understand that, and you can kind of make up your own way. So it, it casts a pretty wide net. Sure. But I started doing Buddhist meditation practice and was sort of raised in, in a kind of Buddhist environment. My father, Stephen Levine, who was a wonderful teacher and, and, you know, and practicing mindfulness and meditation you know, since the early days, since the 60s and 70s. And, and so I, um, the, the theistic concepts didn't really resonate with me. But when I found Buddhism... And the non-theistic approach that was really empowering and really saying, like, actually, this is something in you that you can unlock through your own efforts, through your mindfulness practice, through meditation and renunciation and, and a wise way of life, that resonated, that made more sense to me. But in, in Buddhism, um, I didn't find my people. <laughs> sure. Right. The the Buddhist communities that I was meditating with uh, were like my dad's friends, you know, and I went to the Jack Cornfield retreat. It was like all of the old hippies and I was a young punk rocker and it was like, oh, no, this doesn't. These aren't my people. So in 12 Steps, I really found my tribe. I really found, you know, the recovering people that had 
come from where I was coming from and were trying to live a spiritual life. And I worked the 12 steps very thoroughly to the best of my ability. But, you know, some would say that because the, you know, second step is come, you know, is, is mm -hmm. coming to believe. And the third step is turning your will and your life over to the care of this higher power that um, I did that. And I did the prayers and I did all of the steps and I did it over and over, but I never really came to believe mm. that the truth that I was seeking or that all of us are seeking is outside. I really, my experience showed me that this is internal, that this is something that we unlock from our own heart and mind in Buddhism, what we call Buddha nature. Okay. And so anyways, the non-theistic uh, Buddhist approach just made so much more sense to me than the Judeo-Christian, Islamic, sure. monotheistic, or even polytheistic, or, you know, and all of those sort of externalizing uh, philosophies and religions uh, never totally uh, made sense to me. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful because I think sometimes people struggle with where do I fit in, right? Not even sometimes. I think people within recovery and without recovery can struggle with how do I fit into this thing, right? This thing called life. Yeah. And if you're struggling on top of it, um, so not just the human struggle of where do I fit in and who am I, but now I need this additional support and this help, right, to be able to bridge the gap um, between you know, as you say, finding your people in 12-step recovery and then finding a philosophy or um, I don't know if it's necessarily a faith perspective, but a perspective of looking at spirituality that resonates with you is incredibly powerful. And to be able to kind of parlay it and allow it to be open to the masses is, um, is truly a gift. So I wanted to go back to an another to an acknowledgement of you. And then I want to see how you kind of went from where you resonated in terms of Buddhism and still uh, recovery and how you were able to marry the two to come up with refuge recovery. So my acknowledgement to you, Noah, is that I just want to um, congratulate you and honor you for 29 years of continuous recovery. Um, that is not an easy feat. And plenty of people are unable to get to that point. And so I know that you did not do it by yourself because of your <laughs> humble um, sharing with us. Um, the humility shines through that, you know, you found your people and you were able to connect with people that helped you along the path. But I really want to acknowledge the hard work that you were able to do because it's not the people that keep people sober. That's part of it. But right, right. you did not put anything in your body for 29 years. And that's a major major accomplishment. So congratulations on that. Thank you. So how did you, um, how did you move from kind of finding the Buddhism, which it seems like is just part of your DNA, <laughs> um, and then adding that to your recovery program, and then having that be born into um, refuge recovery? Right. So I started getting sent to 12-step meetings in the early 80s because I got in trouble a lot as a kid. And so I knew about 12-step. And I was in and out of juvenile hall in the uh, adolescent jail. And at the end, in, in 1988, when I finally got sober, I started going to 12-step. 
but also my father introduced me, you know, through a telephone call, gave me basic mindfulness instructions. Said, let, you know, let's just direct your attention to your breath, ignore the past and future as much as you can by redirecting your attention to the breath over and over. And so I started my Buddhist meditation practice right at the same time that I was detoxing and I was incarcerated mm -hmm. and I was going to the 12-step the meeting. So they really grew up together for me, the practice. And, and then for a very long time, and you know, somehow I established and maintained abstinence and was locked up for many months until I turned 18, was in a group home. And, and then beginning my meditation practice was quite... Um, I was embarrassed, actually. You know, it's, it's interesting to be on with you and even the title, The Type A Hippie. I was so identified with being a punk rocker and I associated meditation with the hippies. And it was like, you know, like those were like mortal enemies. Sure. <laughs> even though, of course, you know, you come to understand that that hippie movement and the punk movement are both just counterculture sure. American phenomena, right? <laughs> like sure. uh, just uh, the next generation. But, um, but I had embarrassment about being spiritual because I was identified with being tough and a revolutionary and an anarchist and all of this stuff. So meditation, although it was where I was finding hope and where mm -hmm. I was finding some relief, my first couple of years, it was quite, um, I, I was in the closet <laughs> about, about meditating. And, um, and then at some point I, uh, you know, just surrendered to this is the only thing that really makes sense. That's really working for me. It's the only place I'm really finding relief. <laughs> and that's when I started going to, <coughs> excuse me. That's when I started going to retreats and committing more deeply. And then for many, many years, my practice um, of Buddhism was central to my life. But um, those weren't recovery people. And so I, I had the 12-step recovery community. I went to meetings and I worked the steps and I, I did all of that. And then I practiced Buddhism. And I kind of brought my own uh, translation of like, this is how I can make sense of, of the 12 steps in Buddhism. And I started teaching my teacher, Jack Cornfield, and my father and, and Ajahn Amaro, one of the monks who's been my teacher for 27 years. Mm -hmm. They started to encourage me to teach. Like 20 years ago, they started to encourage me to teach. Wow. And I started going back into the juvenile hall that I had been incarcerated in and teach mindfulness. And I started doing like living room meditation groups mm -hmm. with my friends. And, and eventually, um, especially when I wrote my first book, Dharma Punks, and the community started to grow. I had to make a bit of a decision. Was I going to be a Buddhist recovery person or was I just going to offer these Buddhist teachings to everyone who's interested, including the advocates and you know, the people who aren't necessarily in recovery um, and the people whose suffering is manifesting in different ways, not as addiction. Sure. So I made a conscious decision early on to say, I'm just going to teach Buddhism and everyone is welcome to my you know, my, my centers and my teaching. Mm -hmm. But about 10 years ago, it became so clear that more than half of my community were actually recovering addicts, mm -hmm. you know, and, and in the groups, which became thousands of people around the, around the country. And it felt like a, a responsibility to actually not make everybody do the translation that I had done <laughs> and, uh, 
so many people were coming to me and saying like, I just don't get the Judeo-Christian philosophy of the 12 steps and I do get Buddhism. Why don't we have a Buddhist recovery program? And I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. Somebody should do that. <laughs> you know, like rather than each of us having to kind of do it on our own, like somebody should sure. do that. But nobody seemed to be doing it. And so eventually, with some encouragement and pressure uh, from my community, I said, okay, I'll help create this program of just looking at basic Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path as a recovery process, because it's really what it is. I mean, the Buddha said, the cause of all suffering in life is repetitive craving. Mm. And it's like, nobody knows that better than the addict (laughs) whose whose repetitive craving has created so much suffering for them. And so we just adapted uh, core Buddhism with the mindfulness practice and the compassion practice and the renunciation to a program of recovery. That's awesome. So do you mind taking us through or not so much in deep detail but if you have off the top of your mind since you've been practicing this for 20 plus years um the four noble truths and the eight paths um just so that listeners can kind of identify absolutely so the original formulation of the first noble truth is this term dukkha, the Buddha that says, uh, we have to acknowledge, admit, accept that we have dukkha in our lives. Dukkha is oftenly, often translated as suffering. Sometimes suffering is a little too intense because it's uh, a scale of experience from, sure. dis, dis, from stress mm-hmm. to dissatisfaction to difficulty to suffering. So the the first truth is that there is suffering and that we have to break any denial about that. So for refuge, we say addiction is suffering. Alcoholism, any form of addiction is suffering and we have to accept that, acknowledge it, admit it. The second noble truth traditionally, as I already said, is that the cause of our difficulty, our suffering, our unhappiness is a repetitive craving for sense pleasures. And this is just a basic evolutionary biological view that we have a survival instinct that craves for pleasure and hates pain Mm -hmm. and leads to survival, but doesn't lead to happiness. (laughs) Doesn't lead to a sense of well-being. It just kind of constantly wants the next pleasurable fix. And that's true for addicts and non-addicts. So for both the first and second truths in, in refuge, there's an inventory process an inventory to write down all of the ways that addiction created suffering, all of the ways that the ordinary uh, craving that everyone has became addictive process. And so there's a whole inventory for both of those. The third noble truth is that happiness is possible. This is the traditional teaching of nirvana, uh, liberation, Mm -hmm. awakening, that you can do that. So in refuge, we say recovery is possible. You can, through your own efforts in this lifetime, change your relationship with pleasure and pain and self-centeredness to the point where not only do you abstain from the Mm -hmm. harmful actions of addiction, but that you actually develop a sense of happiness and peace and well-being in your life. The fourth truth is that in order to get to that nirvana, recovery, awakening, whatever you want to call it, um, there's eight 
areas of our life, eight factors, the eight, eightfold path. And that starts with um, understanding. And some of it, some of the emphasis that the Buddha puts is understanding that we're personally responsible, what we call karma, that we are responsible for our actions and what we put out there does come back. And that we, you know, negativity creates more negativity. Mm -hmm. And satisfying cravings creates more craving. <laughs> and um, so understanding reality as it really is. And then having a positive intention of saying like, okay, I want to recover. My intention is to recover. In order to recover, there's going to have to be renunciation. Mm -hmm. There's going to have to be a practice of kindness and compassion a change in how I relate to pleasure and pain. Um, so understanding and intention are the first two factors. Then it gets into what we generally call ethics. So the, the third, fourth, and fifth factor are about how do we behave? How do we act? What, what kind of integrity do we have? The, the third factor is about how do we communicate? And what's our relationship to community? Right? Are we, because it's a relational, like all of this stuff is relational. Like, how do we show up in relationships? Mm -hmm. So, uh, looking at right speech, wise communication, being of service, helping others, being part of a recovering community. Um, the fourth factor of the path is about um, our actions. And a lot of that traditionally is the five precepts is abstaining from violence, abstaining from dishonesty, lying or stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct, mm -hmm. and abstaining from all recreational drug and alcohol use. Now, I love that um, sexuality is brought into it because what's being said mm -hmm. here is that, um, you know, craving for sense pleasures is going to manifest around intimacy, around sexuality. Mm -hmm. And that we bring mindfulness to every aspect of our life. That, we, you know, all of it is included. So, um, sorry. It's all good. A, a doorbell rang. Um, fourth factor, the, 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 the precepts, some renunciation, being really careful. And really, mm -hmm. it's a commitment to nonviolence, right? We, mm -hmm. we care about karma, nonviolence. Right. Uh, be, becoming um, a compassionate person in the world, an honest person in the world. And the um, fifth factor is about money. How are we relating to money? How much mm -hmm. is, is our craving? Is it becoming greed? Mm -hmm. Or is it becoming aversion? Is there a lot of judgment around money or a delusion that money equals happiness? How are we earning money? What, what kind of karma are we creating in mm -hmm. our day-to-day -day life where, you know, it's called right livelihood or wise livelihood? Careful around how you earn money, how you spend. That's a whole part of the investigation. Mm -hmm. The sixth factor of the Eightfold Path is an acknowledgement that all, this whole process takes effort. Where are we spending our life's energy? If we're really saying recovery, spiritual practice, service is our priority, 
are we actually putting our effort into it? And um, knowing that the next factor, which is mindfulness, takes a lot of effort to, to train the mind, to train the mind to become compassionate, to become loving, it takes a lot of effort. And so, and the, the eighth factor, which is concentration. So these are really the two meditative practices, <clears throat> knowing the difference between mindfulness, which is inclusive of everything, and concentration, which is a single-pointed ability to focus the mind on, on a chosen object. You can break the eightfold path down into meditation, ethics, and wisdom. Through meditation, ethics, and wisdom, we will come to recovery. Mm -hmm. We will come to freedom. Um, so as part of that couple things that I didn't mention, there's an amends process, making mm -hmm. you know, forgiveness practice and making amends for uh, asking for forgiveness. There's a mentoring process in, in refuge, just like sponsoring in the 12 mm -hmm. steps where there's a peer-led accountability. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a nutshell overview. That's awesome. Yeah, what came to mind when you were talking about kind of the craving was the sugar industry. You know, anyone who's, you know, mindful of or aware of kind of our food industry and the, the problems that exist within it, you know, how we're getting our food, but also what we're ingesting and so like in marketing add that to the mix um why when you take a toddler right your little people to the market with you <laughs> like you just have to be mindful on where things are placed and such but you ingest sugar and the body craves additional sugar you know so then you end up in this so even friends even if you don't personally which i would question if you haven't been touched personally by you know, substance use disorder or recovery. Um, if you think about kind of when you decide to make a change with what you eat and how you're not successful, it's just a way to relate and to have compassion both for self and others when you think about, oh, I couldn't get this together within myself. So imagine someone else, you know, it, it's just a way to relate. So that just came to mind, Noah, when you were talking about the craving and this assessment kind of circular life that can, you know, we can get caught up in that. So thank you. for yeah, I mean, Some like to say like, well, everyone's addicted to something. And I think that, uh, you know, sugar is, is a pretty, it's like an acceptable addiction for people. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah well, that and I think even alcohol, right, in college settings, because it's like, well, everyone drinks. Well, Maybe, <laughs> maybe yeah. not. Um, so when you are, you know, when you were kind of pulling all this together and it's amazing, it's, it's actually quite fascinating hearing all of that because I, I do believe that a lot of people sometimes can get stuck in their own faith perspective and not be willing to look outside of it to, um, it's just important to be mindful and aware and open-minded. I would, I would say to just kind of say, what can I use? You know, what can I take and what, doesn't maybe resonate with me. So I leave that behind. Um, so thank you for walking us through that. When you were kind of talking towards the end, you know, kind of wisdom, ethics, and what was the third thing? Meditation. Meditation. Yeah. Um, it made me think about 
when someone is new or if someone is interested in incorporating this into their lives, what would you suggest? Because it is easy to get discouraged um, because you think it's like I teach yoga, right? And so sometimes people say to me, well, I can't practice yoga, Chidima, because I'm not flexible. And I'm like, well, you will probably never become flexible if you don't start. Just start, you know? So how does one start in terms of meditation? And not even jumping into the ethics um, or the wisdom piece, but if they were interested in kind of developing that within themselves. Right. So, I mean, I think that if the... If it's about recovery, then finding a meeting, you know, finding a refuge recovery meeting, and there's hundreds all over the country, depending on where you live. Sure. But most, most likely there's one close to, to you. Um, and if not, there's an encouragement, like people can start it, because there is something about that support of, sure. of people. Um, but, uh, but as far as a, a simple meditation practice, there's so many good podcasts that have meditation teachings and instructions. There's so many good apps now, you know, people can do, use Insight Timer or mm -hmm. Headspace or those mm -hmm. kind of things just to kind of sit down and get some basic instructions. And I agree with you. I, I hear a similar thing of like, oh, I can't meditate because I can't quiet my mind. And, you know, and yes, it's like saying like, well, I can't, uh, you know, play the violin. Like, yeah, but if you get a violin and practice it every day, you'll learn how to play it. Yeah. And so it's the same with yoga or anything. Like if you put the, if you are motivated, if you want to do it, if it makes sense to you, then it's worth putting the effort into it and you'll learn it. Sure. So what has been one of your greatest surprises since starting Refuge Recovery? Like whether it's people re connecting with you or what what's something that you just feel incredibly either proud or grateful or both about since refuge recovery became a thing so a couple of things um one is that i thought that refuge was going to be a great support for all of the buddhist minded people i i you know i figured that um and for the kind of non-theistic or atheist minded people but one of the big surprises was that a lot of true believer, 12-step, higher power, even Christians have been coming to refuge and saying like, okay, I believe in God and I never learned how to meditate and I still haven't forgiven myself. And here's some Buddhist tools that will help me forgive myself and build some self-esteem because my faith hasn't done that completely for me, even though it makes sense to me. And so there's a lot of people that have found the resources because, mm. you know, refuge isn't against what you believe. It's just saying, like, you don't have to, right? Kind of the 12 steps sure. are saying you sort of, you have to believe this. And Buddhism is saying, like, it doesn't matter what you believe. If you take these actions, you will experience this, this freedom. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise. And then one of the other things, which is a little connected to that, is... I thought, oh, you know, California, New, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Colorado, you know, like where the Buddhists are, <laughs> Re refuge will do well. But refuge is doing even better. And when I say better, I mean like as far as popularity of sure. the communities in the South, you know, oh, like in, Bur in Birmingham, Alabama, there are seven refuge recovery meetings a week. Wow. In, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in, you know, in all of these places in texas and all of these places that i thought like yeah you know they're christian they're gonna like the 12 steps <laughs> you know? 
But because of uh, what some people experience as the kind of oppression of religion, and then getting becoming an addict and going in there, and they're saying, oh, you kind of have to believe the stuff that you felt traumatized by sure. <laughs> in a different sure. way, in a more open way. Sure. But the Buddhist recovery, refuge recovery, is really thriving in the Bible Belt, in Nashville, in Alabama, in Georgia, in Texas, in um, Florida. You know, so um, there's places that I was surprised by how popular it has, uh, has become. That's you know, awesome. in, New, in New York City, there's like two or three refuge meetings a week. And in Birmingham, there's seven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and it makes sense, though, because I have heard, sadly, in many church circles, I'm the daughter of a pastor, um, that, you know, with substance use disorder and with mental illness in particular, and I would say even as much as like... Um, sexual assault and domestic violence, like these areas where there's significant stigma that you just need more Jesus, you know, and that is really adding insult to injury when someone is really seeking assistance, you know, and they already have faith. It's not that they don't have faith. They have faith, you know, right. and um, if someone had diabetes, you wouldn't say you just need more Jesus. You would say, have you gone to your primary care doctor? Have what did they prescribe yeah. for you? You know, so um, that is surprising, and yet it totally makes sense given yeah. where yeah. things are moving. I would say, and so many, so many of the um, gay, lesbian, bi, transgender community sure. are finding like, okay, um, in refuge and in Buddhism, there uh, we don't have the history of homophobic oppression. That's right. And, and 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 there's not as much in it. So they're feeling like, okay, when I go and hear the word God, it reminds me that uh, you know I was shamed for my natural orientation. That's right. Or judged or whatever. So I think there's a lot of, in that community that are finding um, within a, a non-theistic approach a, a more safe or comfortable yeah. place for them. Loving and tolerant place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So Noah, how do you self-care? Well, before we get to self-care, I want to talk about, um, I heard through the grapevine that you just had a conference. Is that true? Like a refuge yeah. recovery conference? So tell us a little bit about that. What did we miss? So we do an annual, we're, we're just three years into refuge recovery since the book came out. And um, we do an annual one. So this is our third annual nice. refuge recovery conference. And, you know, it's a gathering of the tribes from all over the country. And some people from Canada and Europe come sometimes. And um, some of it's business. Some of it's like, like last year we hashed out uh, the eight guiding principles for, you know, like the 12 traditions, you know, sure. the guiding principles. Okay. And so we made eight guiding principles. And then some of it's, you know, practicing, meditating together. A lot of it's just getting the tribes, you know, getting the groups together and connecting. Uh, and then there's some business aspects of like, okay, we have this movement. There's 300 meetings now. We don't really have an infrastructure. <laughs> Sure. We're a nonprofit organization, but we can't afford to pay an executive director because nobody's really giving us money and it's all donation based. And, sure. uh, and so there's some business aspects of like, okay, how do we really support this? Because clearly people are utilizing it. And then the, and the organization needs some 
support and some structure. Awesome. So there was something that I was going to ask you about. All right. So that's self care. No. Yes. After that. So, so just going backwards, um, friends. So 12 traditions is related to 12 step recovery. So there's the 12 steps, the 12 traditions. So the 12 steps are more about the individual. Um, and people have more familiarity even beyond the 12 steps through movies and such. Um, and then 12 traditions is more related to the group. So keeping the groups intact within 12-step recovery. And then there are 12 concepts as well. So I just wanted to catch you all up in case you weren't familiar with that. Um, then this is a perfect opportunity to plug Refuge Recovery um, because you just heard Noah say that they don't have money for an executive director if that's the direction in which they're moving. However, they are always willing and always appreciate donations. So where can we donate, Noah, if we're inclined? Um, I guess at the, I hope that there's an ability to do that through the website. I believe okay. there is, refugerecovery.org. Okay, awesome. You know, and one of the things that I did um, is I started a professional treatment center uh, where we have a detox and a residential treatment center, outpatient and everything. Um, that is a for-profit that's, you know, it's connected. We're using refuge recovery, but it's uh, like a, a for-profit with the intention that actually if we can build a successful business here, then we'll be able to help support the nonprofit aspect of it. And, you know, that they're, they're kind of connected with the meetings are nonprofit and free and available to everyone. And, sure. um, and then, you know, treatment does cost money. Yes. And so, um, Hopefully that that's going to, in the long run, support each other. Awesome. All right. So you all heard where you can uh, support Refuge Recovery. I'll include that in the show notes. Okay. So self-care. How do you self-care? I meditate. I exercise. I eat good food. I have some downtime. I, I Community sure. and friendship is really important to me. Uh, I make sure to schedule some some level of holidays and this year, I, I did a yoga retreat in Costa Rica. Oh, nice. Um, I mean, I travel a lot for work anyways, sure. but um, I went to Thailand and spent time with my teachers uh, in December and the winter. And so I just make sure to, to schedule it. And I have found over the years that there'll be a, a year sometimes where I didn't schedule my own mm -hmm. retreat. Or I didn't schedule my own kind of, I, I said yes to too many things, sure. too many uh, but I'm pretty good at making sure that I love what I do and I love teaching and I love helping people. And I also um, find it necessary and I, I like taking care of myself as well. Yeah, no, that's important. I was wondering if tattoos were on the list of self-care or not really. No, my, no my, I mean, most of, <laughs> most of my tattooing was like in the 90s and, you know, most of my tattoos are 20 years old. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So is there anything else that you wish to share with listeners about whether it's recovery, substance use disorder, refuge recovery, yourself, um, how to stay connected with you? We'll get yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, not, not so much. I mean, I mentioned the treatment center. If people mm -hmm. need professional treatment and this message resonates, uh, refuge recovery treatment centers.com is the the address for my treatment center 
Um, I teach meditation retreats uh, all over and workshops. And that schedule is probably on the againstthestream.org, which Against the Stream is the Buddhist meditation community. Um, we have centers in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in Nashville, New York, uh, Boston. There's affiliated groups around the country with Against and the Stream. Any in the Midwest? Not really. Okay. Not really. I mean, there's refuge recovery meetings, but not, sure. not Against the Stream groups. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Um, and I'm glad that we were able to make it happen with your busy schedule because that's Me how too. life is, right? It is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> really, yeah. Happy to do it. And, and uh, thank you for having me on and keep up the good work you're doing. Please. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. So friends, I will have um, how you can connect with Noah and Refuge Recovery in the show notes. Um, and again, you heard that you can donate at refugerecovery.org. Um, and then also, if you are in need of detox or treatment and you're in the California area, even if you're not in the California area, all we have to do is put you on a plane and get you over there so that you can stop dying and start living, really, is, is what it boils down to. So, um, and that's Refuge Recovery. No, it's Re Refuge Re Recovery Treatment Centers. Treatment Centers. Okay, perfect. Is that .org or .com? I think it's dot, .com, right? .com, yeah. Okay, awesome. All right, and so I'll have that in the show notes as well. So, all right, let us jump into a couple of stories. They look fun. So, appears to be some a woman, and she has a lot of bright colors on, and she tells the person from Humans of New York, you better snap it quick talking about the photo because I'm jumping on the first thing that comes down this track. So she is not messing around, is she? Uh, and then another lady that is all dolled up and she says, I'm late for a show. You can try to take my photo while I hail a cab. And let's see. All right. You think that your children are going to grow up to be a lot like you, but then they develop into a completely different person. Yesterday, my seven-year-old son told me that reggae was boring. That hurt a little. So there you go. Sometimes we get opinions that we don't necessarily want to hear, but, and out of the mouth of babes, that's how it kind of goes. So, all right. Um, I want to thank everyone for supporting this podcast, the Type A Hippie Podcast. This is Chicas episode 58 with Noah Levine. Um, listen to it, rate it, review it, share it. Subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much always for the love and light and the support that you all give. I honor the place within you where the entire universe resides. I honor the place within you of love, of light, of truth, of peace. I honor the place within you where when you are in that place in you and I am in that place in me, there is only one of us. So remain grateful, friends. I hope to hear from you very soon. Until next time, take care and namaste.